0: with our series that we've called Upstream, where we look at a culture's view of certain things in life. And we often find, if we follow the biblical example, that we're swimming upstream, as it were, against the strong current of our culture flowing in the other direction. And so today's no uh, exception. We'll continue that this morning. Uh, last week, Ski talked about abortion. This week, we talk about money. Next week, we talk about sex and marriage. And the week after that, we talk about Politics. Now, nobody can accuse us of not hitting the difficult topics. But it's easy because God has done that in the Bible. He doesn't shirk or or step around any difficult issues. The Bible hits head on the issues of our day. And so uh, if we're serious and if we're diligent with our Bible study and with our Bible application, we'll cover that also. So we'll go through that this morning. So when it comes to money, I've discovered that people in our culture have different views about it. Now, this is not a biblical application, uh, It's simply my observations that people generally fall into one of three camps when it comes to money. The first camp I would call money haters. The second camp I would call money takers. And the third camp is money lovers. Money haters are people who hate money. They believe that money is evil and therefore people that have it, particularly people who have a lot of it, are evil. Uh, they tend to, to have very little money of their own. They uh, tend to despise people who are rich. Uh, they tend to have very few belongings of their own. They tend to brag about the simplicity of their lives. And in the extreme, some of them will live in a shack in the woods, plant a vegetable garden, and hunt for their food. But by and large, they believe that money and people who have it are evil. The second camp is what I call money takers. Money takers are people who believe that the world owes them money. They believe that they're somehow entitled to have other people uh, pay for their means of living, and they feel like they deserve uh, for other people to give them what they need. Typically, they don't have jobs. They typically don't look for jobs. They typically spend uh, most of their time becoming experts in uh, government assistance programs and other charitable organizations and finding different ways for other people to contribute to their money needs, to their needs for shelter, for their food, uh, for clothing, and any other need that they might Have that they don't uh, need to uh, develop and deserve or or work for on their their own. Most money takers believe they simply deserve it. The third camp is what I call money lovers. Now, this group of people tends to be the largest group of all. Uh, Is simply people who love money. Uh, Most of the people in this camp are also in denial and will not admit that they love money, but oftentimes uh, they do. Uh, Money is a central part of their lives. Uh, Money is the most important thing. Uh, Getting wealth is uh, the top goal that they have in life, and should be obtained at all costs. The idea is to get money, get it now, get as much as you can. It's never going to be too much. They tend it, they care for it, they watch it grow, and they sacrifice other things in life in order to become wealthy. John D. Rockefeller, many years ago, uh, he's the first American billionaire, and arguably he's the richest man ever in American history. He was a money lover, and someone one day asked him exactly how much money would be enough, Mr. Rockefeller. And Mr. Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. His attitude was "You could never get enough. And that's the truth for most of the people who love money. Now, not all rich people are money lovers, and you don't have to be rich in order to be a money lover. In fact, many people who are poor and don't have much money are also money lovers. They desire it. They want it, and so they're miserable because they don't get as much as they would like to have. Now, money lovers also typically believe that money can bring you happiness. And so they spend a good amount of their time accumulating wealth and using it to buy what I call stuff or toys. Toys are things that we play with for our own enjoyment. And so we find ourselves, uh, money lovers find themselves buying cars and boats and four-wheelers and winter bagels and big-screen TVs and motorcycles, things that they enjoy. And they're obsessed with money and the toys that they can buy. money lover's motto is probably best described by a bumper sticker I saw a few years ago, a bumper sticker on the back of a Corvette of all vehicles. It said, the man who dies with the most toys wins. Which I thought was clever, but it says something about our attitude about money and about toys. It's a competition. And for some money lovers, shopping and buying becomes a form of therapy. We tend to call these people shopaholics and make a joke about it. But frankly, it's not very funny. They spend money like mad and they're never satisfied. And spending money becomes like a bad drug for them. Money lovers' attitude about money also affects their relationships. They tend to shun people who have less money than them. They will not make friends at all with people they consider to be poor. They have the attitude that people who have money are more interesting. They're more. Uh, they're they're more beautiful. They're more intelligent. They're more clever. They're more fun to be around. And so that has an impact on the relationships that they develop. And the worst part of that is that they pass that attitude onto their children from one generation to the next. Well, swimming against uh, those camps uh, is the word of God, which we find in the Bible. The Bible and God has a lot to say about money. In fact, our Bibles say more about money and wealth and riches than any other single topic. God, God's Bible the, he speaks very clearly to things like money and wealth and riches, speaks to generosity and greed, speaks to uh, financial planning, speaks to stewardship and talks about God's provision. Bible scholars would say that there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible, over 2,000 verses in the Bible that address money, wealth, and riches. That's compared to about 500 verses or so that talks about prayer and less than 500 that talks about faith. People that study them, the words of Jesus that is recorded in the Gospels will say that 15% of the sentences that Jesus spoke, 15% of them were about money and greed and wealth. So 2,000 verses. That's a lot for me to cover today. But we're going to go through them quickly. We should be done about 12, 15 or so Tuesday night. So I will spare you that, and what we'll do instead is we'll simply uh, put our toe in the water a little bit and we'll cover eight verses, only eight verses. Uh, I encourage you to to look at the wealth, no pun intended of Bible verses that address this issue. Uh, it's it'll be an exhaustive study, uh, but we know that it's an important issue because God addresses it in so many ways. So we'll open your Bibles if you would to first Timothy chapter six, and as you're doing, just a brief, outline that this letter is, a, is a, called 1 Timothy, was written by Paul, it was written by Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. And by and large, the letter's intent was to give instructions, instructions about how people were to act in the church. And so when we to come today and we see his instructions about, about money, we know that it's instructions for us as people in the church. Uh, the first section is in uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 6 through 10, gives instructions to people who want to be rich. And then we'll jump down in verses 17 through 19 where Paul talks up to people and addresses people who are rich. So we'll come to those in two separate sections. Now, just to tell you where we're going, just give you an outline for what we're going to cover this morning, Paul gives us, in this section of Scripture, in these eight verses, he gives us three warnings, and then he gives us three things uh, how to solve them. In other words, he gives, tells us three things not to do, and then he gives us uh, ways that we can avoid them. And the three things he tells us not to do are these. He says, one, do not love money. Do not love it. Number two, he says, do not be arrogant or proud with your money. And the third thing is, do not put your hope in money. Okay, so those are the three things we'll cover today, uh, pulling entirely from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. So let's read it together. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. You can follow in your Bibles, or you can see it on the screen behind me. Paul writes this. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, with many pangs, so in this section of scripture we see Paul's, Paul's first warning: Do not love money. In verse nine, you can see it. it says he says he addresses those who desire to be rich. Those are money lovers. They desire to be rich. They want to be rich. He calls this desire for money senseless and harmful. He says that money lovers are like animals trapped in a cage or in a snare. He says first they're tempted. And then they're caught in the trap, and then they are destroyed. Ruin and destruction, he says. And then Paul says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, this verse, as you know, is misquoted often. Almost always you hear it in our culture as money is the root of all evil. That's not what's written in our Bibles. What's written in our Bibles is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we have to stop and ask ourselves. Do we love money? Do you love money? Do I love money? I found a very helpful list of things that we can ask are seven indications that we might love money. And I'm going to read those to you because I found them helpful and convicting. Seven indications that you might love money. One, thoughts about money consume your entire day. You live in paralyzed fear of losing your money. Number two, the financial success of other people and the material possessions that they have make you jealous. Number three, you define success by what you have. Number four, you neglect your family. That is, you miss dinners, you miss birthdays and weekends in the pursuit of money. Number five is you close your eyes to the genuine needs of other people. Number six, you give God what's left over rather than the first fruits. And number seven, you admire people who have more money than you regardless of their character. Good things to think about. So Paul warns us, do not love money, but how do we avoid loving money? By and large, our culture loves money, and it's easy to get swept up in that. So how do we avoid that? Well, Paul tells us, he tells us in verses 6 through 8. Let's turn back to that. First Timothy 6, 6 through 8 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. So the two keys here, Paul says, to avoiding loving money is this. One, be content. And two, remember you can't take it with you. Contentment. What is contentment? Contentment is being satisfied with having what you desire and not desiring more than what you have, which is a tricky sentence, and so I'd like to repeat it. Contentment is being satisfied with having what you desire and not desiring more than what you have. I think we all have a general idea what contentment is. But, frankly, we don't practice it very much. I believe that the lack of contentment is the main reason why we look around our culture and we see money-grabbing, toy-buying, greedy, materialistic culture that we live in. But content with what? Paul says to be content with food and clothing. Now, the word clothing here would also encompass the idea of shelter. And so Paul says we should be content with three things, food, clothes, and shelter. Nothing more. Now, discontentment arises when we desire more. Any desire for stuff or toys is going to lead to discontentment because really there's no end to the number of toys that we can buy. And particularly when we consider toys and stuff to be necessities, then we become discontented because we feel we need to have them, and so we become discontented until we do. We need to reject the money lover's idea that our self-worth is somehow measured by my possessions. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 12, he said, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Being content requires us to trust God to provide for our basic needs. It's stated clearly in Hebrews 13 uh, verse 5. Hebrews 13 5 says, Keep your life free from love of money. Saying the same thing Paul says, and be content with what you have, for he that is God has said, I will never fail leave you nor forsake you. Now, if you're like me, I think you'll find that being content is not easy. If it were, we would do it, but it's not easy. It requires us to say things like, Well. My car is not as nice as his, but that's okay. Or I live in a smaller house than such and such, but I'm going to be okay with that. Requires us not to be a slave to our own selfish desires. It requires us to be content with what we have. It requires us to say that the desires for more and more stuff is foolish. And as Paul says, it's senseless and harmful. I think contentment, frankly, is a lot like patience. It's nearly impossible. And probably the best way to get it is to pray about it. Dear God, please give me contentment with what we have. The second way to avoid loving money is to remember that you cannot take your money with you when you die. Paul says this very clearly in 1 Timothy 6, 7. He says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. We brought nothing into the world. Those of you who have been present for the birth of a child will know that the child comes out naked. No money. Even the girls are born without purses, right? And that's exactly the way we will die. We will die and we won't be able to take any of that with us. We live for 60 or 90 years, depending on when you die, but it's a short period of time. Those who trusted in Jesus as their personal Savior, when they die, they go into the very presence of God in heaven and they will be there forever. Forever. Compared to the amount of time we spend here on earth, forever is a really, really long time. The problem with money is that you can only use it here on earth, it's temporary, it lasts for a very short period of time. There's no money in heaven. And when we die, we cannot take our money or our toys or our stuff with us. It remains here. So that's Paul's first warning. Do not love money. How? Well, instead, be content. And remember, you cannot take money and toys with you to heaven. Now we're going to skip down to chapter uh, in chapter 6 to verses 17 through 19, where Paul picks up the idea of money again. And this time he's giving instructions to rich Christians. Rich Christians. And he gives two more warnings. So let's read that. First Timothy chapter six, seventeen through nineteen says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul starts out this section in verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age. Now, Paul is writing in the first century church, so it's clear that there were rich Christians in the churches where Timothy and Paul were present. Now, I have something I want to ask you, but I need you to do me a favor first. When I say go, I would like you all to raise your hand, right hand or left hand, it doesn't bother me, either one. I'd like you to raise your hand in the air and then slowly and silently count to 20. Is that clear? Easy instructions. I want everybody to do it. You're going to raise your hand, right or left, doesn't matter, and you're going to count silently and slowly up to 20. Go. Now, while you're doing that, I have a question for you. The question is how many of you consider yourself to be rich? Oh, wow. Look at that. You're all rich. You can put your hands down now. You're a good audience. Sometimes you ask for audience participation. You ask people to put up their hands when they're rich, and nobody wants to put up their hands but they all do. That's really good. Yes, I tricked you. But you got the right answer. We're all rich. Now, I know some of you would be sitting there saying, oh, no, 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 I, you tricked me. I only raised my hand because you told me to. I didn't realize you are going to ask me if I was rich or not. I'm not really rich. I don't have nearly as much money as such and such, such and such. I have trouble making my bills, blah, blah, blah problem with that argument is that we haven't yet defined what we mean by rich, so let's do that. If we took all the people in the world and lined them up here on stage in, in the stage in, in the front here, and we put all the rich people over there on that wall, and, and progressively uh, poor people who don't make nearly as much money, and the person who makes the least amount of money, all the people in the world, you we'll line them up from here to here, poorest person down there, person who makes the most money per year down there on the other end. And we were to say, okay, where is the, where's the cutoff here, right? Where do do we draw the line and say, okay, people on that side of this line are rich. People on that side of the line are poor. So if I stood right here in the middle as I am now, you'd say, well, no, you're not rich. Half the people make more money than you do. Half the people in the world make less money than you do. You're average, right? But if I moved over here to something like 60% or or so, you'd say, well, that's getting on the rich side. If I went to 70%, I'd be even further, right? If I went to 85%, I'd first fall off the stage. But then you'd say, well, 85%, most of us would probably say, if you're in the 85th percentile, that is, there's only 15% of the people in the world have make more money than you do, and 85% of the people in the world make less money than you do, can we all agree that that's a good definition of rich? Can you just nod your heads if you agree with that? Ah, uh-huh, six of you agree. That's good. <laughs> so 85% means uh, fifth, only 15% of the people make more money than you do per year, and 85% don't. Okay, that's the definition of rich. Now, let me tell you this. According to the International Labor, Organ- Labor Organization, who does statistics on this stuff, you don't want to know how they get there. They're economists. They're very strange people. If you earn $11,800 a year, $11,800 a year, I'll say that again, less than $12,000, $11,800 per year, you're standing on the 85th percentile. Now, I look around the audience this morning, and I think many of us, many of us, Almost all of us make more than $11,800 per year, which means that we're all in here are rich. Now, if you make less than $11,800 a year, you say, aha, well, I'm not rich. I don't fall in that category. I'm like, wait. $11,800 by our U.S. government is the definition of where you become eligible for welfare. If you make more than that, you're not. If you make less than that, you are. And so if you apply for welfare and you get Medicaid and you get food stamps and you get other benefits, the monetary value of those benefits, which you get from the government also puts you in that $11,800 or more category, and you become rich also. We have to remember that we live in the United States, which is a very, very rich nation, and even our poor people are rich by international standards. So when we get to a verse like this where Paul says, as for as for the rich in this present age, some of us can get there and say, well, I'm not rich, so I can just sort of turn Paul's uh, instructions off. Well, we can't do that this morning. It covers all of us. So I hope you'll read it with me and think of yourself as a rich Christian because we live in an age and in a society where we're all rich. All right, so let's find out what Paul has to say here. speaking to all of us now. Is Paul's second warning about, is in verse 17, where he says, rich Christians are not to be haughty. The word haughty, as we all know, many of you will know, means not to be proud, not to be arrogant or conceited or stuck up or puffed up about our money. And that's his command. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant about it. Now, sometimes rich Christians, sometimes all of us, frankly, we throw our weight around a little bit at the expense of people who don't have so much money. Sometimes we look down on people who make less money than we do. Sometimes we believe that having money somehow makes us better people or makes us smarter or more attractive. And sometimes we avoid uh, other people in our relationships, and that's an attitude that we can only call arrogance and pride and god hates that god hates arrogance and pride in jeremiah uh, chapter 9 in a well-known verse uh, 23 and 24 it says this jeremiah writes thus says the lord let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God hates it when we're proud and arrogant. So how do I overcome a tendency to be proud and arrogant about my money? Well, Paul tells us the answer to that too. Back in First Timothy chapter 6, 17-19, let's read the whole thing again. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus stirring up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul says the first way to avoid being arrogant about wealth is to remember this, that wealth is a gift from God. Wealth is a gift from God. At the end of verse 17, he says it very clearly. He says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's God who gives us all things and he does so richly. Our God is a generous God who gives us far more than we could ever ask or imagine. When it comes to mind, he gives us more than we need. He gives us wealth. If you are wealthy, and I think we already established that we're all here wealthy, your wealth is a gift from God. Proverbs 10:22 says the blessings of the Lord make us rich. Now some of you are me sitting here now saying, well yes, but I also have the ability to make money. I've got that ability, but guess what? You you're still covered because that ability to make money is also a gift from God. I find that in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 18 where it says very clearly. It says, "It is the Lord your God who gives you power to get wealth." So we're all covered. The fact is that every wealthy man and woman was given this wealth by God. Now, when we recognize that wealth is a gift, it should have an impact on our attitude and our emotions associated with money. There's no room for pride and arrogance when it comes to a gift. Now, many of you know I grew up in Minnesota, a land of 10,000 lakes, which are all frozen for 10 months of the year, so taking up ice skating is a good idea. This was a long time ago, by the way. I've been in Texas for 38 years. Come on, give a guy a break, will you? I know what you're thinking. So anyway, when I was 10, I wanted to get new hockey skates. Hockey skates uh, in that day were expensive. I was one of seven children. My parents didn't have that much money. Um, But I was kind of third in line. I had older brothers. And all the hockey skates I ever wore were hand-me-downs. So we'd get some other family. We'd give give a size eight or a size 10 pair of skates and my brother would wear them for a couple of years. And then my other brother would wear them for a couple of years. By the time I got them, they were pretty worn out. They were back in those days before the uh, high tech composites, they were made out of leather and the, the uh, blades were made out of some corrosive steel because they were mostly rusted by the time I got them. And I really wanted a new pair, but I didn't think my parents could afford it. Well, surprise, uh, Christmas morning, I got up, and I had this box. It was feeling the right size and the right weight, and I opened it up eagerly, and there they were, a brand-new pair. Shiny, the leather even shone, the laces weren't broken. It was fantastic. My emotions were all over the place. As a 10-year-old kid, right, I'm excited, I'm surprised, I'm just shocked that my parents actually spent the money on me for that gift. I was excited, I was over the moon, I was, I just, I was ecstatic. I was thrilled, I was happy, I was thankful. I had a thousand emotions run through my head, in, in, in my heart in a few minutes, but two emotions that were not there was pride and arrogance. They were not there. Why? Because it was a gift. And so that's how we should think about our own wealth. Because if wealth is a gift from God, then there's no room for pride or arrogance in that. Paul knows that. Now, the second way that we avoid being arrogant about wealth is we do good works. And we see this in, in verses 18 and 19, back to First Timothy. It says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So our temptation with money is typically to do two things. One is to hoard it, hold on to it for ourselves, let it accumulate and grow. And secondly is to spend it on things that we want for ourselves, stuff and toys. Paul commands us instead to what he says to do good. Doing good is always for other people and not for ourselves. He says to be rich in good works. Now here's a pun he's using here. He's saying rich Christians should be rich in good works. Not doing just the minimum, not going halfway, but really going sacrificially, being rich in good works, being generous with our money, blessing others with the gift that God has given us. 1 John three seventeen, John writes and warns us, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Paul says that doing good deeds with our money is like making eternal investments. Eternal investments. Typically, we make investments and we expect to get some some money accrued to us over a number of years, but not eternally. Paul says we do good with our money and share it with other people. It's like an eternal investment. He calls it storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. And doing good works with our money in this way has benefits in this life and in eternity in the life to come. If you see that wealth is a gift from God, it will also have an impact and help you to realize that having money and wealth as a gift comes with an enormous responsibility. Just as my mother gave me those skates and she said, you take care of those. Don't leave them outside in the snow to get, get corroded and rusty. Take care of them. God gives us money and wealth and expects us to be good stewards of that. So he doesn't expect us to simply say, oh, great, I've got all that. Let me just hoard it now, and every now and then I'll spend a whole bunch of money on things for myself. No, God has, we have a bigger responsibility with that gift, to be generous, to be good stewards of that, use it for God's glory. As Christians, those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior... When we die, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Don't be confused. There's another thing called the white throne judgment. That's where unbelievers go, and that's a bad outcome. But we as Christians, we will go to heaven. Don't worry, there's only one way out of this this room. But we'll stand before the the judgment seat of Christ, and, and Christ will ask us to give an account for everything that he's given us, including our money. I hope to be able to stand at that throne someday and give a good account for all the wealth that God has given me. We'll be called to account for that. Generosity does not earn us a way into heaven. But generosity tells us where our heart is. Generosity proves that you love God more than you love money. So that's Paul's second warning. He says, do not be arrogant about money. Instead, do two things. One, realize wealth is a gift from God. And two, be rich in good works, being generous to other people. So we come to Paul's third warning. He says, rich Christians are not to set their hope or their trust on the uncertainty of riches. Do not hope in riches. We see this in verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. We talked about that. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There are people who place their security, their trust, their confidence, their hopes in money. And they're putting their hopes and their trust for the future on the wrong thing. Now, Paul is not saying that it's wrong to save money or to plan ahead. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that those who, who put their entire trust and their hope in those things are have got their, their it's, it's just in the wrong place. I know many people are planning for retirement. And when I talk to them, many of them are watching their retirement accounts like a hawk. Daily, they're going online and checking them. And they're worried. They're worried whether their their financial savings is going to be enough to pay their expenses when they get into their old age, and they watch those retirement accounts carefully. The fact is that money and riches are uncertain. Paul said so, we recognize that ourselves. We saw the stock market crash last week badly, a great reminder that putting our hope in something uncertain. Because the stock market and investments and money are, are very volatile and unpredictable. And wealth can disappear in a moment. Proverbs 23 says this in a very clever way, and it's a funny way. It's humorous. Proverbs 23, 4 to 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist or to to stop wanting to acquire it. Then it says, When your eyes light on it, that is when your eyes see wealth, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Just sort of flying away. And we see that. All the time in investments. Now, some of you will say, yeah, yeah, that's because you invested in the wrong thing. What you should really do is hold it all in cash, because cash can't go away. Cash is king. Well, let me show you something. I have a a 10 ruble note here. Uh, Many of you will not have seen this, but in Russia, uh, they don't have dollars, they have rubles. This is a 10 ruble note. I used to travel, many of you know I used to travel to Russia quite often. And each time I would go there, I would go to either the bank or the cash uh, machine there, and I would get some Russian rubles to pay for my local expenses like taxis and and Diet Cokes and things like that. And then when I would come back from the trip, instead of turning the rubles back into U.S. dollars, I would just keep them because I would be going back again. And so I would take whatever cash I had left over and put them in a drawer, lock it up. And next time I went to Russia, I would pull it out and take it with me. Well, in 1997, typically I would have about 3,000 rubles in my desktop. Locked away from my next trip. In 1998, almost overnight, because of the economic crisis in Russia, the value of the ruble dropped by a factor of four. So that 3,000 rubles in my desk, which was originally worth about $600, over time declined and declined and declined. The money was still sitting there. It wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't burning it up or anything like that. It just declined in value where today that 3,000 rubles, instead of being worth $600, is now worth 45 bucks. It lost 93% of its value just sitting there. This 10-ruble note, which actually used to be quite useful for me because I could buy, I could buy a, a, a couple of Cokes that's worth about $2, is now worth $0.15. Cents. It's a pretty piece of paper with some colors on it and a couple of interesting pictures and writing that no one can read. It makes a really good bookmark, and that's about all. The point is that even cash can disappear. And those who place their their hope and trust in this have false security. Money does not give us security. In fact, it breeds anxiety. Many people are anxious about losing their money. They watch their money daily and carefully, and they're haunted by a fear of loss. Paul says, do not put your hope and trust in money. It is uncertain. So, how? How do we avoid putting our hope in money? Well, Paul gives us the answer in First Timothy 6. He says, in verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul tells us, set your hope, set your trust on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Psalm nine ten says this, he says, It says, Those who know your name put their trust in you, O God. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Jeremiah seventeen seven says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Do not put your hope and trust in money. Put your trust in God. God has promised to provide all of our needs. I say that carefully because God has not promised to provide all of our wants. He's not promised to provide all of our stuff or our toys. He's promised to provide all of our needs. Philippians 4.19 says this very clearly. It says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Our God gives richly. He can we can be confident to put our trust in God, not in our money. Now, in my other pocket, I have a $20 bill, a U.S. $20 bill. It's very common. Many of you have them in your pockets. On the back of this $20 bill are four words. These four words are on every $20 bill. They're on every 1, 5, 10, 20, 50, and $100 bill, and they're stamped on every coin in your pocket. And with your indulgence, I'd like to tell a short true story about how those four words got there. In 1861, Secretary of the Treasury was a guy named Samuel P. Chase. The guy, the guy was a Christian. He was in charge of the Treasury. which was in charge of the money in the United States. In 1861, he sent a letter to the guy who was in charge of making coins at the Mint in Philadelphia. A mint is a place where they make coins. So they bring copper in bulk in, and they stamp it into coins, and they send it out as pennies. Or they bring bulk nickel in, and they stamp it and send it out as nickels. And so this guy was in charge of making coins at this mint in Philadelphia, and he sent him this letter from which I quote Samuel, Salmon P. Chase, Christian, he writes this, Secretary of Treasury No nation can be strong except in the strength of God. No nation can be safe except with God's defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins please cause a device to be prepared without unnecessary delay with a motto expressing in the fewest and tersest words possible this national recognition so the director of the mint has got a charge from his boss the secretary of the treasury to come up with a device to stamp into the coins a motto Several models were proposed, and and a second letter from from, uh, Samuel P. Chase went to the Mint director in 1863, and it said this. It said, I approve your motto, only suggesting that it should be changed so as to read, In God We Trust. In God We Trust appeared on the two-cent coin in 1864, and then after that period of time, it got stamped on every coin that ever got made, and still is. Ninety years later... On July 30, 1956, President Dwight Eisenhower approved a joint resolution of the 84th Congress declaring, In God We Trust, to be the national motto of the United States. In God We Trust was then printed on every paper bill starting in 1957. The national motto, In God We Trust, was reaffirmed in 2006 and again in 2011 by both the Senate and the House of Representatives, and today... The shortest code of our government's code, Section 302, Title 36 of the United States Code, states this very simply, In God We Trust is the national motto. In God We Trust is now printed on every paper, bill, and every coin in the United States. Of all the places to write In God We Trust, what better place to put it than on our money? May I suggest that every time you go into a store or somewhere, you want to buy something and you pull out a dollar or a $10 bill or a quarter, you turn it over and see those words. In God we trust. It's a great reminder of Paul's instruction. Do not put your trust or your hope in the uncertainty of money, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We do not trust in money. In God we trust. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for your instructions about money. Well, we know it's an important topic, and we thank you for being the God that you are, that you've given us so much information about money and riches. Lord God, we thank you for the instructions you gave us in First Timothy chapter 6, where you told us, do not love money. Instead, we should be content and remember that we cannot take our money with us when we die and go to heaven. Thank you, Lord God, for your warning that do not to be arrogant about our money. Instead, we are to be to realize that wealth is a gift from you. And so we should be rich in good works and generous toward others. And thank you, Lord, that we should not put our trust and our hope in wealth. Instead, we'll put our trust in you, O God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Lord, thank you for your instructions about wealth. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and the strength you've given us to obey your word. Help us today, Lord God, me first, to go away from here and to remember these things. Help us, Lord God, to treat money as you would want us to treat it. And thank you so much, God, for giving it to us as a gift. We thank you and we love you and we pray all these things in the powerful and precious name. Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.